children of our future Teach them well and let them lead the way Show them all the beauty they possess inside Give them a sense of pride To make it easier Let the children laughter Remind us how we used to be Everybody's searching for a hero Someone to look up to I never found anyone To fulfill my needs A lonely place to be So I've learned to depend on me I've decided long ago Never walk in anyone's shadows If I fail, if I succeed At least I live I want to welcome you to the sixth episode of the Male Mysteries Podcast. Yet again, it's been a while since the last podcast. I've had several things keeping me busy, the most important being the health of my father. A couple of years ago, he developed prostate cancer, and while they originally got it under control, it has since spread to his bones and his brain. He had to have brain surgery in May to remove a tumor, and is currently undergoing radiation and soon chemotherapy. I'd greatly appreciate if you'd keep him in your thoughts and prayers and send positive healing energies his way. As for the frequency of this show, I think we've had enough episodes for me to safely predict that barring extenuating circumstances, in general a new show should be out every six weeks to two months. Sometimes it might be a little longer and sometimes it might be a little less. There's actually a lot of work involved in putting this together, researching the topics, arranging interviews, recording, and then mixing it all together. So I'd like you to know that I haven't forgotten you. I've just had a lot on my plate. In this episode, I'll talk about gay associations with the green man and why the color green has a history of being gay. I'll talk about mentorship, and I'll also share with you an interview I did with two individuals, one who is a mentor and the other who is a mentee. Many gay and bisexual men, dissatisfied with modern religions that struggle to accept and condone us, are hearing the call of the old gods, those gods and religions of antiquity that embraced us and recognized our inherent spirituality. While modern religions debate our worth as lovers, as priests, as sexual beings, the old gods and the old religions embraced us as sacred. We were their shamans, their priests, the intermediaries between the gods and mankind. Many of the gods themselves were homosexual, bisexual, or transgendered. These gods were untamed, vibrant, and sexual. Accept their call and their healing embrace. These are the Male Mysteries, and I'm your host, Male Mystery. I'm really starting to feel popular now. I received two whole letters for this podcast. Not just one, but two. Here's the first one. Hey Mel, your podcasts are a great idea. Came across your site when searching gay pagans this morning. Have downloaded them all and subscribed to future ones. They are fantastic. That one's from Mike in South Africa. Mike, thanks for the compliments. It's nice to know that people like the show even as far away from me as South Africa. Okay, here's the next one. Hi Mel, I've been listening to your show for a little while now and really enjoy it. Since you seem to want feedback over your ageism episode, I'll give some. 
My own opinion is that people shouldn't have hard and fast rules about whom they won't date or sleep with, but should follow their reason and their heart. For example, when worrying about age of consent, I think a person should evaluate, honestly and with a clear head, whether or not a younger person is old enough to make a decision about sex and relationships. I do see the point in having a legal age of consent, however. In a society this large, it would be nigh impossible to get by with a vaguely worded age of consent law. The way our legal system works, there needs to be a clear cut, you broke the law or you didn't. I'm not saying I agree with that, but it is efficient and democratic. For most of human history, humans have lived in groups of no more than 70 people. In a small culture like that, it might be possible for the community to deliberate on each individual case of questionable activities and determine whether or not someone acted wrongly. I guess my point is that in terms of morality, we have to use an informed consciousness in order to determine who is off limits. In terms of legality, I don't see an alternative to choosing an arbitrary age of consent. I really liked your last episode on rites of passage. I definitely agree that coming out is a rite of passage. It's not just an initiation into the gay community. When I came out, I didn't join any community. I rarely go out to the bars and only have a few gay friends. For me, coming out was all about the community I was already in, namely family and friends. Blessed be Jason. For those of you who might be interested, Jason teaches classes, including classes on the gender mysteries at the Learning Circle at www.wise-learn.org. www w-i-s-e-l-e-a-r-n dot org Who's that face watching from within the forest leaves and foliage? Perhaps it's the green man. The green man is in many ways the counterpart to Kernonos mentioned in the last episode. Whereas Kernona symbolizes the wild and untamed animal nature of the forest, the green man is the embodiment of the wild and fertile vegetation of nature. The green man is often depicted as simply a face in the leaves. Branches or vines might sprout from his nose, mouth, or other parts of his face, and they may even bear fruit or flowers. He may have leaves for hair or a leafy beard. The face is almost always male. Green women are rare and green cats, lions, and demons are also found. Green man carvings and sculptures are often found as part of the architecture of churches from the 11th century to the present day. The pagan-esque symbol of the green man in Christian churches would seem to indicate the vitality of the green man and his ability to survive as a symbol of pre-Christian traditions despite the influence of Christianity while at the same time coexisting with Christianity. The green man is considered a symbol of growth and rebirth as when forests sprout back to life in the spring. The green man is found in many cultures throughout the world and may have developed independently in these cultures rather than having a common root. There are many characters that are related to the green man and they may even be a different representation of him. The Egyptian Osiris, the Norse Freyr, the Celtic deity Viridios are all gods that have green man aspect. Other possible mythic and folk tale representations of the green man might be the Green Knight in the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, John Barleycorn, Jack in the Green, Robin Goodfellow, Puck, and Robin Hood. 
Since this episode is about mentorship, it should be noted that in the story of Sir Gawain, the Green Knight served as both a monster and a mentor to Sir Gawain, and helped in Gawain's initiation from an idealistic youth into mature adulthood. There is also an undercurrent of possible homosexual relations in this tale. In one part of the story, Gawain makes a pact with his host, Berkilak, who is really the Green Knight in disguise. In the pact, Berkilak will share with Gawain whatever food he wins through hunting, and Gawain agrees that whatever he wins in the bedroom with Berkilak's wife, he will share with Berkilak. Since knightly virtues idealize chastity and restraint, Gawain resists the overtures of Berkilak's wife, and Gawain is only bound to kiss Berkilak on the cheek to honor their agreement. Modern representations of the Green Man include Peter Pan and might include superheroes such as the Green Archer, the Green Lantern, and Robin from Batman and Robin. Besides the tale of the Green Knight, I tried to find some other connections between the Green Man and homosexuality. Certainly the Green Man has sexual symbolism as a fertility deity, but I couldn't easily find anything else that connected him with homosexuality. After much searching, I did stumble upon two books that might. The Path of the Green Man, Gay Men, Wicca, and Living a Magical Life by Thomas Michael Ford, and The Secret Lore of Gardening by Graham Jackson. I haven't had a chance to purchase or read either of these books yet, so I may put them down for future book reviews. While I wasn't able to find out much about the first book, I did find a few good reviews on The Secret Lore of Gardening that shed some light on the Green Man archetype within gay life. I'll take a little bit of time here to share what I found. In The Secret Lore of Gardening, Graham Jackson talks about gay archetypes, particularly the archetypes of the Green Man and the Yellow Man. The Green Man is athletic, body-based, sensuous, a gardener, domestic, quiet, dark, and earthy. On the other hand, the Yellow Man is not body-identified. He's awkward, cerebral, intuitive, a poet, light, verbal, and solar. The gay men who embody the Green Man archetype are allied with the Earth and the Primordial Mother. Green men can fall into further sub-archetypes known as the Flower Boy, the Gardener, and the Prophet of the Land. The Flower Boy is young, playful, and innocent. He is at a stage in life that is full of possibilities. In mythology, Apollo's young lover, Hyacinth, is a perfect example of the Flower Boy archetype. The Gardener is sedentary, a homebody, but also a man of common sense and practical wisdom. He's very much a part of the physical realm. Mythologically, he might be Mercury, Dionysus, or Pan. The prophet of the land is the darkest of these archetypes. Dark green, that is. He's the wise man, the elder, the sage. He knows the secrets of the earth and has great spiritual power that requires a lifetime of commitment and a strong connection to the earth. He mediates among members of the tribe. The prophet of the land is the shaman, and his role is central to the well-being of the tribe. Gay men who embody the solar archetype are allied with the sun and the sky father. Sub-archetypes of the yellow man include the golden child, the Hellenic, and the lunatic. Yellow men are men of ideals, order, systems, and philosophies. They tend to be somewhat detached. The golden boy is the divine messenger. He is full of idealism and enthusiasm and may have trouble dealing with reality in the physical realm. The Hellenist is a philosopher. He seeks truth and constructs systems to embody that truth. He relies on order. The last of the yellow man archetypes is the lunatic. He plays a spiritual role. His light is the yellow-white light of the moon rather than the gold of the sun. He seeks wisdom to blend ideas. In the book, Jackson also talks about initiatory relationships, in particular the Greek mentoring and sexual relationship between an older male and a youth. He uses the story of Apollo and Hyacinth as an example, with Apollo representing the mature yellow man, the Hellenist, 
while Hyacinth takes on the role of the younger flower boy. Hyacinth's death is taken as symbolic of his passage from childhood to adulthood. It is the death of his adolescence. In the gay community, there tends to be a high percentage of men who are aligned with the yellow man rather than the green man. The yellow man tends to be urban and intellectual. Even groups that claim to be rural, such as the radical fairies, are often composed of a large number of yellow man types who moved out of the city to form their own communities and inadvertently brought urban culture with them. Those gay men who embody the green man archetype are more elusive as they are less likely to be frequenting gay bars or pride parades. Here's a poem in honor and tribute of the green man. Remember me, try to remember. I am that laughing man with eyes like leaves. When you think that winter will never end, I will come. You will feel my breath, a vine caressing your foot. I am the blue eye of a crocus opening in the snow, a trickle of water, a calling bird, a shaft of light among the trees. You will hear me singing among the green groves of memory and the shining leaves of tomorrow. I'll come with daisies in my hands. We'll dance among the sycamores once more. And that poem was written by Lauren Rain. Greetings, Kermit the Frog here, and today I'd like to tell you a little bit about the color green. Uh, do you know what's green? Well, I am for one thing. You see, frogs are green, and I'm a frog, and that means I'm green, you see? It's not that easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves when I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that it's not easy being green it seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things and people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky but green's the color of spring and green can be cool friendly like and green can be big like an ocean or important like a mountain or tall like a tree when green is all there is to be it could make you wonder why but why wonder, why wonder? I am green, and it'll do fine. It's beautiful, and I think it's what I want to be. In Greek mythology, specifically in Homer's Odyssey, Mentor was an old friend of Odysseus, and Odysseus entrusted Mentor with his household, his palace, and his family when he went to fight in the Trojan War. 
Several times during Odysseus' long absence, the goddess Athena would come to Odysseus's son Telemachus, disguised in the form of mentor, to give him advice and counsel. She encouraged him to stand up to the many suitors to Telemachus's mother, Odysseus's wife, Penelope, during Odysseus's long absence. Athena, in the form of mentor, also encouraged Telemachus to search for his father. The term mentor really took off in its modern usage as a teacher, counselor, and advisor when the French author Francis Fenelon wrote a romance called Telemache in the year 1699. In the novel, the Greek mentor was a lead character. The first recorded use of the term in reference to a wise counselor was in 1750. In its modern usage, the term mentor refers to a trusted friend, a counselor, a teacher, or just someone with more experience who offers their knowledge and expertise to someone less knowledgeable or less experienced. Many schools, businesses, and community programs offer some kind of mentorship program. A mentor can be a coach, a motivator, an advisor, a role model, or even a partner. In mythology and other literature, a mentor is a common character in the hero's journey. For example, in the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Green Knight serves as a mentor to Sir Gawain. Someone might want to become a mentor as a way of sharing their knowledge, skills, history, and life stories with another generation. Gay men typically don't have children to pass these things along to, and some gay men may wish to fill a fathering role. He may want to leave a legacy after he's gone. A true mentor will only have altruistic goals and the best interests of his mentoree at heart. One might search for a mentor if he is looking to learn new skills or to increase his knowledge. He might be looking for help in the coming out process or for someone to show him the ropes of being gay. He might be looking for a spiritual teacher. He might be looking for help advancing his education or career. He might be looking to learn a trade. He may even be seeking an objective view on his life, skills, decisions, or challenges in his life. In the sparse information I found on gay mentorships, I did find an article in the White Crane Journal, issue number 40, on something called secret mentorships. In these secret mentorships, someone or even more than one person, secretly and anonymously help guide and support an individual. They look out for his interests, they offer words of guidance and support when needed, they give you tips and advice, perhaps they helped you gain a job or scholarship, they may even send friends or compatible dates your way. They do this with intention and over several years. It reminds me of the 1998 movie, Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. In the movie, Billy, played by Sean Hayes, a.k.a. Jack from Will and Grace, in the movie, Billy is a photographer trying to arrange gay versions of great Hollywood screen kisses. Billy's project is funded by his older friend, Perry, who also gives him advice and encouragement throughout the movie. Perry also introduces Billy to contacts in the art and photography community. So anyway, Billy meets this really hot waiter and aspiring musician, Gabriel, and convinces him to model for him. Gabriel has just broken up with his girlfriend and seems to be unsure of his sexual identity. To make a long story short, Billy is convinced that Gabriel is gay and falls in love with him. Gabriel gets tapped for another modeling gig in Catalina, and Billy follows him there. It turns out that Gabriel is gay, but he isn't interested in Billy. In the end, Billy finds out that his older friend Perry similarly is in love with him, and since he realized Billy wasn't interested, Perry instead helps him along. To me, at least, that seems like a perfect example of one of these secret mentorships. Perry takes an active role in helping Billy with his personal life and career, but the mentoring relationship is never formalized, and Billy seems largely oblivious to the role Perry has in helping and guiding him. I can name several people in my own life who have filled the role of mentor, even though we didn't formalize a mentoring relationship. I had an older friend in college named Bob who 
used to always offer me good advice. A former boyfriend named Steve, who was a mechanic, taught me a little bit about fixing cars. My friend Charles offered me a lot of advice related to both being gay and being pagan and gave me encouragement during a hard time in my life. And my friend David, who we're going to talk to in a few moments, is always giving me good advice and insight. What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? No, Neo. I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. I'm here today with my friend David Kaufman, who is going to tell us what it is to be a mentor. Uh, David, um, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is David Kaufman, uh, and I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I wanted to thank you for uh, inviting me on your podcast. Does that make us pot people now? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Okay. Um, so, David, uh, what exactly is a mentor? A mentor, uh, the term mentor itself actually came from ancient Greeks. Uh, Odysseus left mentor to guide and teach uh, his son Telemachus. Uh, but I can't, I can't actually say that it's a pagan term. It's a pagan-inspired term because it's only been around for the last, say, 300 years or so. Mentor is a term we use nowadays to describe someone who is a guide, someone who is a coach, someone who is a teacher, and anyone who essentially fulfills the qualities of, of ushering someone from... It could be anything. It could be a professional a professional mentor, it could be a, uh, a mentor in some a sport, it could be uh, any pursuit that a person would want. Would you give our listeners a little back, background on your background and experience as a mentor? You can talk about your professional experiences, but I think people would be really interested in your experiences as a magical teacher. Uh, I'll touch on the, uh, the professional ones. Um, I'm a certified mediator in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and in order to become a, a mediator, you have to go through not only courses that are taught, but also a sort of mentorship uh, phase. Basically, you have someone who is called a mentor, and uh, you would be called the mentee, although actually the, the correct term would be mentoree, but, <laughs> but I use the term mentee a lot as well. Um, the mediation process basically requires you to sit in on some mediations and observe them. And uh, In the mediation process, the mentor essentially guides the mentee until they become a mediator, a certified mediator themselves. In the other realm that you're talking about, is a, is a, are you talking about the pagan realm? Yes. Um, a mentor would be someone who guides someone, uh, say, learning about a specific ability or uh, a pursuit, such as magic, or a religion, druidry something along those lines. Okay, do you have anything to say on your own experiences doing that? Or, I know you are te you consider yourself a teacher. Well, <laughs> I was asked to be a teacher. You were asked to be a teacher. <laughs> um, yeah, one day uh, a friend of mine uh, had asked me, it started off uh, with a, a Japanese term, he said, uh, senpai kohai, which just means uh, someone who is older and younger. Uh, and then that kind of strengthened into uh, a mentorship. He asked me to be his mentor, and then that kind of grew into him saying, I want you to be my teacher, and I'll be your student. And he wanted to learn uh, about magic. Okay, actually that kind of answers the next question. I was going to ask you, how did you become a mentor? Um, I was asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, did, was there some kind of a formal agreement or process that you went through, or was it just pretty much he asked and you said yes? He, uh, he did ask me, and I did say yes, although it, it, it didn't occur quite that starkly and that quickly. Uh, it kind of evolved over time. Basically, what, what occurred was that he would draw upon my experience. He would ask me a lot of questions, and uh, then it just got to be to a point where he wanted to formalize it. 
Okay, did you write up some kind of an agreement to formalize it, or did you shake hands, or I'm just... Uh, <laughs> well, we, we actually did a, uh, a ritual to, to start off the whole process. Okay. Um, what are some challenges that you've experienced as a mentor? One of the challenges I had was that this particular person had had some negative uh, experiences in his past. Uh, he had become a member of uh, an organization that claimed some things that turned out to be false later. Okay. So he trusted a little less easily the next time. Okay. And what about uh, rewarding experiences as a mentor? Can I say one more thing about challenges about being a mentor? Sure. I think one of the big challenges that a mentor faces is devoting time to something. The time and effort that you put in has a lot to do with the mentor-mentee relationship. And that's something that I had to think about for, for a bit before I wanted to, be, to take that on. Obviously, when you take on, the more people you take on, the more time you're investing in something. Right. So, now what was your other question? Okay, uh, how has uh, being a mentor been a, res a rewarding experience for you? Yes, it has. As I said before, there is a fair amount of time and effort that you sink into something like that. But uh, I have gotten a lot out of it. Uh, inevitably, and I'm sure a lot of teachers out there will know what I'm talking about, inevitably you learn from your students as well. Okay. What are some qualities that you think are important for being a mentor? The most important quality to being a mentor is to have the experience to draw on, uh, life experience. And you, whatever the particular area that they that they want guidance in is the one that you should have the experience in. For instance, if I were going to ask you about uh, podcasting uh, and I asked you to be my mentor, you would have to have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of knowledge in podcasting in order to, to be an effective mentor. Okay. Have you ever been a mentee? And if so, did those experiences prepare you for being a mentor? I, um, I described earlier that I was a mentee as part of the, uh, the process of becoming a, uh, a certified mediator in Virginia. Other than that, I don't think I've had a formal relationship with a, with a mentor per se. Do you think that your, um, your experiences with the, as a mediator or with that training, do you think that helped you better prepare you to become a mentor? Yes, it did, because part of that was also, <laughs> the mediation actually helps, but the, uh, the, I also had training as in facilitation, which also helps uh, in, a, in a teaching relationship. Okay, do you have any advice for folks out there who would either like to become a mentor or those who are in search of one? I think that um, becoming a mentor is something that arises organically most of the time. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with people who just go out and want to be a mentor. <laughs> just wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to be a mentor. Uh, I think it base, it's based on recognizing that someone has a certain amount of life experience that, that you can draw on. And I guess that that's the answer to the other question. If you're in search of one, you basically want to identify someone who can help you in whatever pursuit it is. If that's a professional pursuit, you want to find someone who's in that profession. Okay. Uh, do you have any other uh, things that you would like to say about mentorship, about mentoring, uh, before we end out this interview? Yes. I think that um, it's, it's, it can be a very rewarding thing uh, if, if the relationship goes well. <laughs> And that can be anything from, say, uh, if, you're, if you're a coach, uh, if you're a big brother, someone in that particular, I'm, I'm referring to the big brothers of America, any relationship that you have along those lines uh, can be something that can be a life-altering experience. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, participating in the interview today. Thank you. Luke, you must complete the training. Oh, I can't keep the vision out of my head. They're my friends. i got to help them. You must not go. 
Developing positive mentoring relationships takes time and patience, much like establishing other human relationships. Both parties should have a genuine desire to understand the values and expectations of the other person and to respect each other's feelings and needs. Healthy mentoring relationships change and grow over time. They change because the purpose of a mentoring relationship is to help the student to grow and evolve, to build his knowledge, skill, and competence. Qualities that are essential for both mentor and mentoree to have are mutual respect, trust, realistic expectations and perceptions, a feeling of partnership, and time set aside to meet. There are four stages in mentoring relationships. In stage one, the mentoree selects a mentor, or in some cases, a mentor selects a mentoree. They can even be assigned, but usually they prefer to select for themselves. In some cases, a mentor or mentoree may decline. The mentor and the mentoree become acquainted, informally clarify their common interests, shared values, and goals. When selecting a mentor, a mentoree should look for someone they respect, has the knowledge, skills, and experience they wish to gain, has the time to help them, is outside of their chain of command if the relationship is professional, who will be honest with them, and who they are willing to take guidance from. Stage 2 is where things become more formalized. The two communicate their initial expectations and agree upon some common procedures as a starting point. This would be the time to set up a formal or informal agreement on things such as when and how often to meet, what things might be considered confidential, how long the mentoring relationship will last, specific role of the mentor, and the objectives for the student. At some point, the student has progressed, his objectives are met, personal or professional growth has taken place. In stage 3, new goals and challenges are presented. This stage can last for months or even years. Eventually, the student becomes a master. In stage 4, the mentor and the student redefine their relationship as colleagues, peers, partners, or friends. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. So I am here with Eric Hodge, who is David's student. Hi. I thought it would be nice to get your perspective on what it is to be a mentee. Hmm, okay. Would you give our listeners a little background on your background and experience being a mentee? Oh, well, let's see. I've, uh, I've had several teachers throughout my, my spiritual and, and magical progression. I first met somebody that I would call a mentor magically, spiritually speaking, when I was eight years old. I was a seeker very young. I went to various different religious groups and spiritual groups, magical groups, and learned everything that I could about their system before deciding on its validity. Now, I've been David's student since late 2004, early 2005, and the reason is because I think looking at how he's lived his life and the positive effects that his learning has brought about, I decided that that was something that I wanted. He has a lot of qualities that I think are that I think are very admirable and they're qualities that I would like. And so I approached him and asked him to be my mentor. Now, interestingly enough, I asked him in a very different way. Now, David is a single man with no children, and therefore he has no legacy to pass on. And I didn't... Looking back throughout history, you can see all this knowledge that has been lost. You can see great men who have passed away with with nothing to pass on to someone else. No students who learned at their feet. No 
no books that they've written, nothing that they could just leave behind, no legacy. And I didn't want that to happen with David. I thought he has a lot to offer humanity. And if he wasn't going to write a book, if he wasn't going to, you know, teach a school, at the very least he could teach me, and I would carry that torch. And now I have children of my own, and what I've gleaned from his wisdom, maybe they'll carry on, something like that. Okay, uh, was there some kind of a formal agreement or a process that you went through uh, to become a mentee and to have him as a mentor? Yes, yes, we actually had a ritual, uh, we had a we had a ceremonial recognition of our mentor-mentee relationship, of, of our student-teacher relationship. From the beginning, David and I have viewed it more of a, of a senpai-kohai relationship, which is, senpai and kohai are, are Japanese terms, and they mean upperclassmen and lowerclassmen, respectively. Uh, senpai is somebody who is further along on the path than you are, but you're both on the same path. And I'm, I'm the kohai, I'm the junior classman, I'm, I'm not as far along the path. He's never viewed it as a, as I am your teacher, these are the lessons, learn them by rote kind of mentality. It's always been a very, this is where I am in the study of this idea and this is the wisdom I have to pass on. But yes, we did have a, a ceremonial recognition of our relationship. Uh, there were witnesses. It was at uh, Harvest Fair 2004, I want to say. Yeah, it was Harvest Fair 2004. That So that was in September, October time frame. I don't remember the exact day. But it was, it was late 2004. We, it was a very simple ceremony. In fact, he asked me to craft the ceremony, and he did so sort of as a test to see where I was in my magical and spiritual development. So he was able to gauge by the actions I performed and the way I performed them. He was able to, to kind of glean what my understanding of the magical process and, and the idea of spiritual awakening. He was able to to discern from what I did, where I was, on the path. Uh, have you experienced any challenges as a mentee? Oh, oh goodness, yes. Uh, challenges. We are constantly challenged by people who are, who are superior to us. And I recognize that, that he is superior to me in, in several ways. In many, in many ways, he's more intelligent than I am. Uh, he's certainly a better chess player. <laughs> uh, he's, he's physically... Uh, more powerful than I am. There's there's a lot of things about him that I consider to be to be superior to me, and it's it's a very hard thing to accept that somebody else is superior to you. It's a very it's a very difficult thing. In 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 America today, we seem to be just inundated with the idea that we can do anything we want to, that we are that we are powerful and supreme, and that there is nothing that can defeat you. You know that that whole oh, self-esteem is the most important thing in the world, so don't think that anybody out there is better than you. Well, the reality of the situation is there are people who are better than you. Einstein is probably better at physics than I am, and that's just the truth. Gary Kasparov is a much better chess player. I'm just going to have to deal with that. Stephen Hawking knows more about mathematics. I'm just going to have to deal with those things. And David has a lot of, a lot of qualities that are superior to mine, and I accept that. And as such, when he asks very difficult questions... It's very challenging, and that's mostly that. That's mostly the the challenge of being his mentee is that when he asks a question that I've never even considered before, there were a lot of things that early on he would ask me the magical significance of the Declaration of Independence. Now, David and I are both very patriotic people, so 
that was an obvious line of questioning, but it was one that I had never considered. And so forcing me to reevaluate my understanding of politics and democracy and the great documents of our society from a magical context. What do they mean from a magician's point of view? The Declaration of Independence. What does that mean to a magician? That was a very challenging thing. Now, apart from that, I mean, there have been many challenges uh, balancing my studies with raising a family. Like I said earlier, I have children of my own. I have a wife. And balancing his, his teachings with my daily life have been, have been very difficult. Sometimes he'll ask me to do something, and it's a question of, do I really have time? Now, he's been a very good mentor in that he has given me a, a deadline, but not a severe one. Like he said, you know, I want you to get this done in a couple of weeks. Do it at your pace, but get it done within a couple of weeks. And so if, if I put it off for a couple of weeks, then I have to rush the last day to figure it out. And, you know, I take, I take from that what I can. There have been a lot of challenges along the path. What about rewards? Oh, the rewards have been amazing. I mean, you can't have challenge without, or sorry, you can't have reward without challenge. That's that's just the way of life. You can't get a reward with no effort. That's that's anathema to, especially to a capitalist society. The idea that uh, that we could get something for nothing is ridiculous. And by that nature, challenge should be commensurate with a reward. I mean, whether it be a physical reward, a tangible reward, or a or a spiritual reward. And there have been lots of rewards. With every question he asks that's challenging for me to answer, the answer is even more rewarding as I grope toward it in the darkness myself. When he asks a question I've never thought of before, presents a scenario that I've never even considered, I grow. And that's, that's rewarding in and of itself. But to balance the challenges I presented earlier of, of family and, and obligations that I have you know, job commitments. I, I'm not a full-time student. I wish I could make money studying the things that David teaches me. But in reality, you know, I have a job and a wife and kids and, and all of the normal responsibilities that, a, that your average American has. And so learning to balance those things, it's been delicate. And it's taught me an appreciation of just how much time is worth. When I was young, my uncle told me that we have 24 hours. Every day we're given a gift, and that gift is 24 hours. You have tw- Here you go. It's 24 hours. It's free. And no matter how much you beg, or borrow, or plead, or pay, you don't get any more. And that's a powerful lesson to learn. And I thought I understood it for a long time, but now as I balance multiple obligations, and maybe I have more to learn about it. I mean, you know, at no point can you look back on your life and say, I'm done. I've learned everything I need to learn now. I'm, that's good. I'll just sit back now and rest on my laurels. Maybe I've got more to learn. But I will say that balancing his studies with the responsibilities of just being a human being, it's taught me a lot, and it's been very rewarding. Yes. Are there any qualities that you think are important for being a mentee, for being a student? Oh. Say this way. Yes. Trust. You cannot truly be a student. You cannot truly be a mentee unless you trust your mentor. That doesn't mean don't question. And I would be very skeptical of a mentor who demanded an unquestioning spirit of me. Uh, David has always nurtured a questioning spirit. He's always encouraged me to ask questions, to seek help outside of him, in fact. If I could learn from other people, he's always told me, learn, learn as much as you can. That's that's the basis of, the st- of being a student, is to learn. And, you know, if I sought out his friends to learn from them, he didn't get upset with me for learning from somebody else. No, it was always, I'm learning, and that's what matters. And, and I trust him because of that. 
I trust him partly because of that. I trust him for a number of other reasons. But trust is very important. He could tell me, I want you to go out in the middle of the night and stand on one leg beneath the full moon for 30 minutes. And I'd try it. I'd wonder, why? Why am I doing this? And I'd ask him probably point blank, why am I doing this? And he'd say, well, you'll figure it out while you're doing it. Maybe he'd say that. Or maybe he'd say, well, I want you to understand, you know, the the idea of waiting in an uncomfortable position. It might be something obtuse. I, this is just an example that he's never asked me to do this. But I would trust that he had some greater idea in mind, not that he just wanted me to go out and suffer. And I think that that trust is extremely important because I think a lot of people today enter student-teacher relationships not understanding that there is an implied level of trust. You're trusting somebody to teach you things you don't you don't know about. And that could be a baffling and horrific thing if they were malicious about it. I mean, let me give you an example again. Uh, say I was teaching somebody else about mathematics, and I taught them all the wrong rules. I taught them all the wrong mathematical formula. I taught them mathematics that was not mathematics, that it was completely backwards mathematics. And then they went out and tried to use their mathematics in the real world. What would happen? They would fail miserably. And that's where that level of trust comes in. A mentee must trust their mentor, must trust the idea that the teach the student has to trust that, that at some point the teacher is trying to teach them valuable things and not just teaching them out of a sense of perversity. That's an extremely important aspect. And I think everything else just follows from that. Courage to do what they ask you to do. A willingness to follow at some point. You can't uh, cert there's an acceptable certain amount of rebelliousness depending on the mentor. I mean, David certainly tolerates a great deal of rebelliousness from me. But everything else falls into place from that level of trust. That understanding that the person you're learning from is an authority on a subject you desire to be an authority on. And how seriously you take that desire will be how seriously you learn. Do you have any advice for folks out there who are looking for a teacher who want to uh, want to be a mentee and they're looking for a mentor oh, you know there's a lot of a lot of people can say a lot of crap I can tell you right now oh you'll know him when you see him or you'll know her when you see her but that that doesn't help look around at the people you associate with and if there's one that you look up to that's your mentor that's it right there I, David was my friend a long time before he was my mentor, a long time before he was my teacher. And I just came to slowly realize that there were qualities about him that I wanted. I wanted those qualities. What better way to learn those qualities, what better way to gain those qualities than to study at his feet? And I think that anybody can do that. It's not a question of, you know, does, does he walk in and mist sweeps out of his cloak and... And does he have this hard gaze of steel, and you know immediately, oh, he's the one I want to teach me. No, that's all image. But if you find yourself constantly deferring to somebody else's wisdom, somebody else's intellect, constantly find yourself asking them questions, coming to them for advice, you've already become their mentee. You've already become their student. Now you just need to formalize that relationship and ask, and say, listen, will you start teaching me? Not just, not just dropping nuggets of wisdom that I'll pick up, but will you start actively presenting them to me in packaged form so that I can, I can absorb them? A mentor can be anybody if they're superior to you. And that's a hard pill to swallow. I said that before. That's a hard pill to swallow. I'm 28 years old, and I'm a worse chess player than Josh Waitzkin was when he was 12. 
Now he's an international grandmaster now and one of the most aggressive chess players in the world. But if I were to meet 12-year-old Josh Waitzkin, yeah, I'd study from him. I'd, I'd learn from him. I'd study with him. Because that's what it is all about. It's somebody whose qualities you desire to have. Getting past your own ego is an important part. That's probably my biggest piece of advice, is just, just get past your ego and ask. If there's somebody you've always wanted to teach you something, somebody you've always looked up to, just ask. You're not debasing yourself. You're only, you're only embracing the potential to grow. And that's it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm, uh, I'm sorry if my passion kind of gets the better of me. I'm, uh, I'm a very passionate person. I'm sure you can tell. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. There are some risks and pitfalls to mentoring relationships. First, I'll talk about some common pitfalls to any mentoring relationship. There can be a mismatch between a mentor and a mentoree that can cause failure of the relationship. Perhaps they feel uneasy with each other or don't communicate well. Perhaps their goals and values just don't match. Maybe the mentor doesn't have the knowledge or skills that the mentoree is looking for. If caught early, such a mentoring relationship can be ended with both persons leaving with no hard feelings. The mentee may have unrealistic expectations, expecting or demanding too much from the mentor, or expecting the mentoring relationship to meet every need or to continue indefinitely. That's why it's important to set up realistic and clearly defined goals at the outset. A mentor might breach the confidentiality of the mentoree. It's important that the mentoree trusts the mentor and that codes of conduct related to confidentiality are established and understood by both parties at the beginning of every mentoring relationship. A mentor might consider a poor student a threat to his image. He might consider that a student who doesn't succeed in their goals might be a poor reflection on his skills as a mentor. A wise mentor will encourage a broad base of support where the mentoree learns from many people and will avoid over-identifying with the success or failure of the student. A mentor may be too helpful. If the mentor does the work for the mentoree, then how can he learn and develop? It is important for mentors to realize that students must learn from their struggles and mistakes. Mentors should provide information and direction, but must let the students do the actual work. A mentor can be too critical or judgmental. No matter how good his intentions, criticism can poison a mentoring relationship and build a wall between the mentor and the student. This does not mean that a mentor should accept negative behaviors, performance failures, or self-defeating, repetitive actions. Instead of criticism, however, new, objective, and creative approaches are important to encouraging improvement rather than being repeatedly critical and negative. There are some specific challenges to gay mentorship. I think one of the biggest is the ageism in the gay community. Several years ago, I helped put together a weekend retreat called Brotherhood Across the Boundaries. The goal of the weekend was to encourage a common brotherhood of men across boundaries of religious path, sexual orientations, age, and other such attributes. I had actually hoped to get men together from our local prime timers group, a group for older gay men, and men from our local gay youth group with the idea of mentorship in mind. I sent letters to both groups proposing the idea and encouraging their participation. As you might guess, I never heard anything back from either group. I really can't speak for their reasons, but I think ageism may have been involved. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, many younger gay men perceive older gay men as predatory and just looking for sex. Many older gay men perceive younger gay men as superficial and not interested in them or what they might have to offer. 
Such attitudes certainly don't build the trust needed for mentoring relationships to flourish. Homophobia could be an issue for a man wishing to mentor a youth in programs such as Big Brother, though as of 2002 the Big Brothers Big Sisters of America doesn't discriminate based on sexual orientation. Even with the policy, parents have the option of selecting or rejecting mentors for various reasons, including homosexuality. There's also the issue of whether a mentoring relationship can also be a romantic relationship. I could certainly see a romantic relationship where one or both partners help the other grow or learn in their area of expertise. I mentioned earlier how one of my boyfriends taught me about working on cars. On the reverse, a mentoring relationship that turns into a romantic relationship could be in for trouble. In a mentoring relationship, there is a formal, even professional boundary between the mentor and the student, and it is important for the student to respect the authority of the mentor. When such a relationship becomes sexual or romantic, these boundaries become blurred. There is also the potential fallout should the romantic relationship turn sour. If one person expresses sexual or romantic interests and the other isn't interested, the mentoring relationship could become awkward or even end. If done right, mentoring relationships can be beneficial to both the mentor and the mentoree. They can provide the mentor an opportunity to share his knowledge and skills with someone and to feel valued. They can provide the mentoree a chance to learn and to develop personally or professionally. Mentoring relationships are not to be entered into lightly. They require ongoing time, energy, and commitment from both parties involved. Do you hear the grasshopper, which is at your feet? Old man, how is it that you hear these things? Young man, how is it that you do not? So
very fat. <laughs> you may have heard the expression in school never to wear green on Thursday because that makes you a queer or a fairy. What seems like a cruel made-up children's game to identify gay people actually underscores a long history of the color green being associated with gay men. We already know that fairy is a term used to identify gay men. Its use has been largely derogatory, but some gay men have reclaimed it. In the book Another Mother Tongue, Gay Words, Gay Worlds by Judy Gran, the author points out that green was the primary color worn by mythical fairies, and this connection ties into this tradition. The fairies have freer sexual morals than Christian cultures are comfortable with. In fact, given their extremely long, perhaps even immortal lives, the idea of eternal marriage and coupledom would only give way to boredom. So homosexual bonds were also likely to have been acceptable. The color green is a useful color for mythical fairies because it helps them to blend in and remain hidden in their natural environment among the plants and trees. As for the connection with Thursday, Thursday was considered by some to be fairy day. There is an additional connection to Thursday with medieval witches. When questioned under torture about their practices, some witches confessed that they practiced different sexual rites on different nights, and Thursday was the night associated with homosexual rites. But the association with the color green and homosexuals goes back even further. Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit has more to say on the color green. At Ephesus, the transgendered and often homosexual priest of the goddess Artemis, uh, also known as Diana, wore garments of scarlet, violet, saffron, and yellow-green. In ancient Rome, green, and especially yellow-green, was associated with male gender variants and especially the passive role in male homosexual acts. These men were called Galbinati and are mentioned in Marshall's epigrams. Marshall talks about how these soft, effeminate men are garbed in green and lie on purple couches while being fanned by another man using red feathers. It sounds like the good life to me, but Marshall criticizes their morality as being, quote, grass green. In pre-modern France, bisexual and homosexually inclined courtiers called mignons, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, wore green as a primary color in their tights, along with yellow and red. Often one leg of their tights would be green and the other would be yellow, and they might have a red cape. Their costumes were derived from three sources, the costumes of traditional troubadours, the costumes of fools, and the costumes of the legendary fairies. Because green was associated with the margins of society, it also became associated with heretics who carried a green cross in their ceremonies. Green was also a signifier of homosexuality among British poets. The association of the color green with homosexuality survived into the 19th century and may even have been reclaimed at that time. A green carnation was adopted as a kindred symbol by Oscar Wilde and the English decadents, and during the same time a band of men in Paris wore green cravat to signify their homosexual inclinations. So as you can see, the color green has a long history of associations with homosexuality, fairies, and paganism. Wear it proudly but especially wear it on Thursdays. What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? No, Neo. I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. On the same day I interviewed David about being a mentor, David also brought up the topic of the Green Man effect, an effect where you can see faces and other creature images and photographs taken in nature. We were actually walking while this was taking place and about to go kayaking at first landing State Park in Virginia Beach on the summer solstice. We actually ended up canceling kayaking as a summer storm blew in, but here's about a minute or so of footage 
of me talking to David about the Green Man Effect. Uh, talk, you were just telling me about the Green Man Effect. Uh, um, one of the things I enjoyed, I like to look for what I call Green Man Effects. And this is a phrase I made up, Green, green Man Effects. And basically what, it, what I'm looking for is little faces and little uh, people that sometimes get formed by the bark and the, the way the bark and the leaves and the tree, the tree limbs come together. Do you know the type of thing I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, you've, you've shown me your pictures. Yes. So. And so I like, I like kind of looking for those things. If you look long enough in a picture, you'll, you'll find little faces. Sometimes you'll see them in the bark of trees, that kind of thing. Yeah, we, at a retreat we had a couple years ago, remember the one, there was, it looked almost like an elf hanging on the side yes. of the tree? Yes, yes. And then we did another one, uh, and Track was with us, and there was a wolf, it looked like a wolf head. Oh, yes, that was really something to see. No, I, I'm not, really striking, actually. Yeah. Um, though I wouldn't say that's necessarily a green man effect, would you? Uh, you said you oh, have yeah. another, is it? That's a green man effect, Okay, yes. it's the same thing even though it's not in the face of a tree or anything. I, I thought it was. It was kind of like a tree and a uh, shadow and a... Oh, okay. You should post that on your site. Yeah, I think I will. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else more to say about the... It's a lot of fun. I mean, if you have nothing better to do with your time, you can just sort of go through pictures of vacations and things like that. And if, if you're out in the woods, basically, you can look for these types of things. Right. Always true. That about wraps it up for this episode. Before leaving, I'd like to suggest that you take a look at the Mail Mysteries webpage. There I've posted links to the photos David and I mentioned that show the Green Man effect. Besides podcasting, I also try my hand a bit at photography. I've posted a few professional photos I've done with the Green Man as a theme, and you can follow a link to more that I'll actually have up for sale within a week or so of this podcast going out. The address is http colon backslash backslash melmystery.matrixworks.com that's http colon backslash backslash m-e-l-m-y-s-t-e-r-y dot m-a-t-r-i-x w-e-r-x dot com the title for the next episode is over the rainbow I'm referencing a chapter of Tim Burling's book on gay aging where he talks about gay men who once an active part of the gay scene from clubbing to pride parades, but for whatever reason are over the scene now that they're a little older. I like your take on this. Are you over the gay scene, or is it the best thing since Judy Garland? I'd like to know what you think. I welcome typed emails, but audio files where you do the talking would be even better. If you go to the Mail Mysteries website that I just mentioned, you can contact me from there. I'll also talk about a Norse god who had homosexual priests and the significance of the colors of the rainbow flag. Insert introduction here. Okay, what do you want me to say? Uh, talk, you were just telling me... Say that we're here at first landing. Okay, go ahead. We're here at first landing on the summer solstice, uh, June 21st, 2008, and we're at a place at First Landing State Park called the Narrows. It's a beautiful day. We're watching people uh, boating, kayaking, and just sunning at the beach. David, what is the secret to good mentoring? Beatings. Beatings. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate on this? Beatings, lots of them and often. <laughs> and often. You know, you know this from experience. <laughs> So, in his interview earlier, David said that uh, an important quality or an important thing about mentorship is the beatings. <laughs> so, w w would you elaborate on these? 
has he ever beat you? Uh, beat me at what? Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> well, uh, we've wrestled and fought. I smacked him once. That was that was not. Uh, he didn't appreciate that. Let's just let's just put that on the line right there. Uh, he's beaten me at chess. He's beaten me up. <laughs> uh, the beatings. <laughs> has he ever beaten me? Like has he ever just taken out a like a stick and hit me with it? Yeah, whip. You know anything like that? You know? Yes. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. <laughs> has. Has it been abusive or has it been to teach you a lesson? Oh well, it's. Uh, David abuses me. It's horrible. He needs to stop. Okay, and one other question for you. Oh, well, there's only one other? Man, yeah. We're just, start, we're just starting oh. to have fun. All right. Oh. What's yeah. the difference between a mentee and a manatee? <laughs> well, let's see. To my understanding, a mentee is somebody who learns from a mentor. I don't even think mentee is correct English. To be completely honest, I don't think mentee is correct. I mean, that sounds like a bad mint. First of all, that sounds like something menti. That just sounds like something that you don't that you consume if you have bad breath. All right, honestly. Like a Tic Tac. Yeah, exactly. Or Mentos. Okay, it's menti, the fresh maker. Uh, so, what? I, th- I think David said earlier, and I don't know whether it actually made it onto his part of the podcast. Uh huh. That the correct term is mentori. Mentory? Yeah. Is that the correct term? That would make sense. You know, he knows a lot about the English language. Though nobody actually uses that because mentor was actually a name. Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, I'll have to talk to him about that, because that's stuff I just, I, I don't know about at this point. Okay. I've got a good grasp of the English language. I mean, people don't use words like proclivity that often, but I do. But he's got a better grasp, so I could defer to him on that. Mentory is a possible uh, is a possibility. I just prefer teacher-student. That just makes more sense. It's, how, it's how, easier to use. Uh, what's the difference between a student and a manatee? Yes. <laughs> well, uh... Oh, man, I am so going to go to naturist pagan hell for this, but uh, students don't get caught up in boat motors? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. (laughs) Good night, everybody.